Good morning. My name is Justin Sitzma, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtright, and it is a special honor to give you our Good Friday sermon this year. The Christian life is marked by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And throughout the whole Christian calendar, church calendar, we hear about Christ's life, his love for others. And as well, we often hear about his death on the cross and the new life we share in him through his risen body. There's a short phrase we use uh, in our communion liturgy. It's a, it's a creed of sorts. It says, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ shall come again. Today, however, we sit particularly with the Christ who died. The story of Good Friday is a story that we must continue to tell over and over again, because though it is God's story, it is in many ways our story. It is a story of sitting with our sin, our brokenness, and our Savior. This can be uncomfortable, I admit, It feels unnatural to lament. And in fact, many Christians can struggle at times with even the concept of lament. We want to jump straight to a joyous Easter Sunday morning. After all, aren't we supposed to celebrate our victory over sin and death? Aren't we supposed to live holy as people of the risen Christ? The answer is yes. And yet, there are times when we must remember the Christ who died, to remember the agony that he endured, to reflect on the trauma that those who loved Jesus were experiencing in that moment, to see ourselves, our sin, our mistakes, our failures, to lament and to bring them to the foot of the cross. So today we sit with the reality of the Christ who died. Let's pray. God, we want to see you this morning. We want to experience all that you have for us. We want to hear the Good Friday story afresh and to be changed by the power of the the cross of Christ today. May we encounter you in an unexpected way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be reading from the Passion passion Narrative found in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And if you have a Bible and like to follow along, uh, it will be in Matthew 26. And a little bit later, just right after the sermon, we're going to be in Matthew 27. So on Sunday, we celebrated Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem with palm branches, with singing, with celebration. And we noted that many wanted to see that this this triumphal entry become an entry of a king riding on a war horse. But instead, Jesus rode in on a lowly donkey, the first of many subversions and unexpected happenings that week. And in the five days that have come and gone since Palm Sunday, some drastic changes have happened in the story. It's Passover week. 
the pinnacle of the high holidays for the Jewish people. But that doesn't stop the chief priests and some of the religious leaders from conspiring to find a way to arrest Jesus. And blinded by ambition and greed, Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, a close friend, conspired alongside them. Jesus and the 12 commemorate the beginning of Passover together in an upper room with bread and wine. It's a foretaste of the sacrament that we call the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion, but it's also more immediately a foretaste of the events that were about to take place in the next 24 hours. So Jesus and some of his friends following this meal, they head to the Garden of Gethsemane near the Mount of Olives. And this is where we find our reading today, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his, to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived with him, a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of that high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think I, can, I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings and the prophets might be fulfilled. 
Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. The scriptures are no stranger to gardens. The Bible starts in a garden, the Garden of Eden in Genesis. And it ends in a garden, a renewed Eden in Revelation, a garden city of sorts. This first garden is what we could call a garden of decision, where Adam and Eve are confronted with the choice to choose what is good in their own eyes or what is evil. And in our passage today, we have another garden of decision, a garden where Jesus must decide and determine whether he will bow to the will of the Father or whether he will choose a path of lesser pain or lesser sorrow. This morning, my heart's desire for us is to do two things. It's to re reflect and to respond. It's far too easy, as I find, to jump into character assessments. You know, are you like Peter? Are you like uh, whomever? We end up asking questions about how we ought to stay awake and alert, unlike the disciples, or questions about how, whether we should defend Jesus or whether violence is ever appropriate or how we have betrayed or abandoned Jesus. Those are valid conversations, and I hope that we do take those into consideration at some point today or tomorrow, but that shifts our focus away from Jesus and onto us in some way. So this morning, let's ourselves to reflecting on and responding to Jesus, Jesus the human and Jesus the divine. Firstly, Jesus the human. It's here in the garden that we see Jesus at his most raw. He needed a quiet place to withdraw and pray, but he invites many of his disciples to be close by. In his anxiousness, he did not want to be alone. Jesus, in this moment, experienced unrelenting sorrow. He said to his friends, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. To the point of death, he says. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that he thought the sorrow would literally kill him, but rather it feels as though he could die in that moment. The dread was overbearing. The consuming thoughts about what were to take place were more than his human body and heart and mind could bear. My own human heart, as I read this over and over again this week, struggled to comprehend what, was, what Jesus was going through. I found myself fixated on these words. And in his humanity, he prays for another way. He wants the same thing as the Father, but he prays for another way. He says, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. But true to form, he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Through sorrow, through soul-wrenching fear of what was to come, Jesus chose to follow God the Father. And he has this conversation 
If there's any indication that this was producing a degree of anxiety in him, he has this conversation with God the Father not once, not twice, but three times. And each time he concludes that he must stay on the path set before him, the path of pain, the path of the cross. And in the backdrop of this, Jesus sees his friends unable to remain present with him and three times they are found asleep. All he wanted was their proximity and their vigilance, and they were unable to deliver this simple task. It must have felt like everyone and everything around Jesus was caving in on him in that moment. But by the third time that he catches them asleep, something shifts the anguish and the fear that seems to have dissipated in favor of resolve as Judas, Jesus' betrayer, and the Roman authorities and religious authorities approach. This is where we see Jesus, the divine. Now, to be clear, Christians believe that Jesus has two equal and simultaneous natures, that he is fully human and fully God at the same time. And in the garden, it's not as if his words, his prayers, or his actions were forsaking his divinity. They were not. But rather, we simply saw more of his humanity in that moment. But here, we see the opposite. We see his divinity in power on display. So Judas comes and greets Jesus with a kiss. This was a common custom in the ancient Near East but one that obviously rings quite hollow in light of what they both knew was about to happen. One of the ways, in many, that Jesus' divinity is on full display here is because I know exactly what my human nature would do if someone did that to me. Instead, Jesus says, do what you came for, friend. I have to imagine that word friend must have stung for Judas. They had traveled together for several years. They had gone through so much together, and yet Judas chose to not only reject, but outright betray Jesus. And as Jesus is being arrested, a disciple, which John's gospel names as Peter, unsheathed his sword and cut off the ear of one of the servants, Malchus. Jesus told Peter earlier, that there would be one person who would betray him. And he said, Peter, or uh, deny him. And he said, Peter, that's going to be you. You kind of have to imagine that Peter was bent on disproving Jesus in this moment. Perhaps a little too overzealously. Peter is not a man generally known for his restraint. So overzealousness is nothing new. But Jesus, however, in his divinity, calls off the violence to avoid further escalation. He heals Malchus, one of the enemy's ears. And in a, this is a bit of a scathing commentary on the myth of redemptive violence. As he declares, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Echoing his words at the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you have heard it, that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Also in this moment, we see a beautiful parallel here again with the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Here's a quote from Fulton J. Sheen. He says, Eden and Gethsemane were two gardens around which revolved the fate of humanity. In Eden, a sword was drawn to prevent entrance into the garden. You'll be reminded of the, um, the seraphim that were guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. But in Gethsemane, that sword would be sheathed. Jesus' call to stand down here is not what most humans, is not the way that most humans think and act. We have seen this more than ever, humanity's tendency toward escalation and retaliation. And Jesus, the divine, subverts this completely. Too much more could be said about this, but it would become a distraction. Jesus, the divine, was committed to the will of the Father, so, uh, and so he was prepared to be handed over to the authorities. He reminds both the disciples and the religious council present that he could instantly command thousands of angels in an instant, armies upon armies, that he could wipe out the enemy in an instant. But he says, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way. Jesus the human and Jesus the divine on full display. His sorrow, his anguish, his fear, his healing power, his compassion even for his enemies, his power, his glory, and his might. From here, Jesus is arrested and he's brought before the high priest before the Roman officials, he's beaten, whipped, mocked, and crucified. He died an excruciating physical and bodily death on that cross. He also experienced what felt like a total separation and abandonment from God the Father. And in that moment, he experienced a pain that could be described perhaps as worse than death. His lifeless body was removed from that cross and it was placed in a tomb and sealed with a stone. The trajectory of Jesus's life and really the entirety of scripture points to the reality that Jesus willingly subjected himself to this for us. Jesus says of himself earlier in Matthew 20 as a foreshadowing, he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's been saying to people, especially to his disciples for years now, about this moment, that Jesus came to earth to die for us. He did this with intention. He foreshadowed this over and over again, that he would be, in the words of Paul in Romans 4, delivered over to death for our sins. Truly, there is a weightiness to this reality. You know, we sing phrases like we did earlier, that it was my sin that held him there. But do we actually come to grips with what is meant by that? Have we sat long enough with our own human condition and the gift of the cross to truly understand the fullness of what happened on that Good Friday? Or maybe we will never fully comprehend what took place in that, in, on that day. 
So how do we respond? D.A. Carson says this, as his death was unique, so also his anguish, and our best response to it is hushed worship. In a few moments, we're going to do exactly that. I don't know what you are bringing into this Easter weekend. Maybe you're bringing in situations where you're wrestling with your own mortality or a loved one's mortality. Maybe a recent or pending diagnosis. Maybe the past couple years have left you weary and jaded. Maybe you are still grappling with the loss of a relationship or a job or any number of things. Or maybe you have anxieties around the future, around finances, around wars and rumors of wars, an ongoing pandemic, anxieties about the family you have or the family that you want to have. For many of us, it may feel today completely natural to linger around the story of the arrest, the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus. It suits you. It suits the moment that you're in. For others, though, maybe life is good. Maybe hope feels real this morning. Maybe the Spirit of God feels present and active and alive in your life. You're excitedly anticipating reunions with loved ones this weekend. You're anticipating a wedding, a birth, a new start, whatever that looks like for you. Whatever our circumstances, however we come before the cross this morning, I believe our response is the same. Over today and over Saturday, don't rush to Sunday. That's our response. Don't rush to Sunday. Linger today at the cross. One of humanity's greatest challenges is our inability to sit with discomfort. We constantly seek distraction, and it makes sense. It's a logical thing to do to avoid pain. When we look at the cross of Christ, after all, we are reminded of the ways in which we've harmed ourselves, the ways in which we've wounded one another, and the ways in which we've acted contrary to what God desires for our lives. The cross can act as a mirror of sorts, a painful reminder of our human condition before a holy God. Yet, I think that it would be wrong of us to not remind ourselves that the cross was not meant as an act to lead us to despair or to wallow. The cross was an act of love. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So while our response this morning is muted and solemn and contemplative and mournful, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And we sit expectantly at the foot of the cross to receive God's forgiveness and grace, to receive God's love. So today and tomorrow, respond to the cross by taking 
the time to sit with the reality of Jesus who died on the cross and was buried. You can do that at home, by yourself, with a loved one. Another way maybe to join us tomorrow on our church property here outside where we'll have guided prayer stations set up on our property. Promises to be a really beautiful reflection as we, uh, as we move toward Easter Sunday. And of course, our weekend isn't complete without Easter Sunday. And so I would encourage you to join us as we kind of go on this journey from solemnity to joy.